Steven Spielberg once told a, a film student about who wanted to make him ask, like, how do you make a movie? He answered like really simply, he's like, go make a movie. <laughs> and, and like, I, you know, I like the advice people, I, people always ask like, how do I get started in something like this? And it's like, just go like sort it out, like figure it out, ask questions. Um, and like, you know, put it, put aside the nervousness and the fear of failing or disappointing somebody or, Cause you're certainly going to do those things. <laughs> like it's not that you're not going to fail or disappoint people. You are 100% going to fail and disappoint people. And like learning that that's like, okay, I think it's probably one of the biggest, it's like the easiest way to become invincible. Welcome to another episode of let's give a damn the podcast that inspires and equips you to give more dams than ever before. We bring you amazing stories of people from all walks of life who saw something wrong and gave a damn about it. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and I'm beyond thrilled to bring you today's conversation. Ian Rosenberger was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His life and career took him all over the world, experiencing new things all the time and meeting the most amazing people. One of those places he began to visit frequently was the country of Haiti. As a result of a trip he took right after the 2010 earthquake, which claimed the lives of over 250,000 Haitians, he started two organizations, Thread and Team Tossi. Team Tossi is now known as Work, so Thread and Work. I don't want to give away too much about what Thread and Work do, but I can tell you, buckle up and be prepared to be blown away. These are great organizations. Ian is a truly exceptional leader running these organizations that are changing the world in so many tangible ways. They are damn givers through and through. Toward the end of our conversation, you'll hear me state that this podcast would release on September 18. Obviously, it's not September 18. We wanted to give you more time to get to know them and to check out a Kickstarter they are currently running for a new backpack they have made from 100% recycled canvas, which was made entirely from discarded plastic bottles. I got my hands on one of these bags, and let me tell you, they're fantastic. Super functional, they look great, they made a truly exceptional bag. And you're gonna wanna stick around all the way to the end because I have details at the end of this podcast. Thread has generously donated one bag for me to give to one of you. That's right, one of you will get your hands on this bag valued at almost $200. It's a beauty. You're gonna wanna take this bag everywhere like I do now. But first, let's hear more about Ian's life, his heart, his passion, and his vision for a better world. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ian Rosenberg. It's my pleasure to have Ian Rosenberger on the line. Ian, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Nick? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. We have so much to talk about. I'm pumped to learn more about you and about the work you're doing. So shall we get into it? We shall. Let's give a damn. Wonderful. I love it. Before we get into all of the amazing work that you're doing and the projects you're involved in, let's learn a little bit about you because I hope that we'll get a little bit of a peek and maybe some hints into why you turned out the way in the way that you are and why you're doing the work that you're doing. So take us back as far as you want to go, but just give us kind of a, a quick overview of the people, places, and things that shaped you into who you are today. Yeah, right on. I mean, uh, the quick and dirty is I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I, I tell my team all the time and anybody who will listen that 
I'm old enough to remember the steel mills closing, but young enough not to give a damn. And, <laughs> there you go. Uh, grew up uh, here in the city, and uh, my dad, uh, uh, you know, uh, started his own business. And my grandfather worked in the mills. Um, my great grandfather worked in the mills. So uh, in, in Pittsburgh, we call that a mill hunky. I'm, I'm a mill hunky all the way through, um, and you know, grew up in those one of those little steel towns that that you know has had such a tough time over the past past 20 years or so. Um, but, but, you know, understood, you know, what going to work for a living means and spent a lot of time traveling, um, and all over the world, uh, got the chance to, to spend some time, um, doing a reality TV show in my early twenties. And, um, and through that was introduced to a, a really good friend that took me to Africa in, uh, 2006, 2007. And, um, had my world opened up in Africa and Zambia, um, understood uh, for the first time what it was like for people to be poor and could empathize um, with poverty. And then that led down a road that um, became you know, a real life changer for me. Amazing. So a couple questions here. One is this reality show that you quickly glossed over. Is it one that we would all know about? Were you a bachelor, Ian? <laughs> no, I'm not good looking enough to be a bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was actually on Survivor. Um, oh, nice! And uh, it was early in the in the Survivor process. Um, I, I say all the time, I try to spend the rest of my life since Survivor trying to get my my uh, it pushed to the second page of my Google search. <laughs> there you go. Well, keep keep working at it. It'll happen. Uh, and then you said you spent time in Zambia. I I spent. Uh, it, what year were you there? Did you say two thousand six? Two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, I was in Zambia uh, in two thousand six. Really? Uh, for like six or seven weeks, way out in the bush. Oh. Um, spent some time with friends out there. Uh, I went with a group that was there for two weeks, and then I stayed for another four or five. Loved oh, it. Cool. Like I just was yeah. just just living and loving it, and the people are amazing, and uh, just spent a lot of time with great people for weeks on end. It was it was a beautiful experience, and it, it's it, an incredible country. Yeah, it really it really really is. The people are you know second to none, and. Um, yeah, learned a lot, learned a lot. I mean, I've, I've been involved in humanitarian social impact work from the age of 13, so 21 years now, but those few weeks in, in Zambia taught me so much. Like it was a crash course in, you know, we could probably talk a little bit about this, but in what, what people in countries like Zambia need from us and what they don't, um, the place that we have in those types of countries, right. And the place that we don't have, you know, we, we sometimes go over with this, you know, the savior complex, we're going to go over there and save and fix and, and, you know, put, put into place things that, and they don't, they don't need that. You know, they don't need, we can sure come alongside and assist them. But anyway, all that to say is like, I learned a ton from, uh, my time in Zambia, who knows, maybe we waved at each other while we were there. I know, seriously. Well, uh, we probably both stick out like a sore thumb, yes. but, uh, I think you're hitting right on the head. I mean, uh, I spent, uh, the, the bulk of my time in a, in a slum in Lusaka called Chihuahua. And, uh, I, I thought I had understood what it meant to be poor, uh, for uh, up and until that point, but, but got the chance to, uh, just get to know people and realized that I really, really enjoyed, um, uh, working with the, with people there, I wasn't sure exactly how to do it and do it well, um, but it just led to more conversations, more trips, uh, and and I was really guided by a really good friend of mine who started an organization in Africa across twelve countries in Africa called Grassroots Soccer. At the time, he was a professional soccer player in Zimbabwe. He saw a bunch of his friends um, die because of AIDS, and just decided to start a nonprofit that would 
help use soccer leagues to teach kids about AIDS prevention. And, and that grew and grew and grew. And, uh, you know, he, he's just a, a guy I look up to in, in my life. And, and, um, it became one of those things where it's like, you know, like I want to do something like this, but I, I wasn't sure how. And after the show, you know, I was working in television, um, as a producer for MTV and, and I, I worked as a photographer and a videographer. And, uh, in 2010, um, I was working for a marketing agency here in Pittsburgh. Um, and after work one day, I was playing dodgeball, dodgeball with a bunch of friends, um, you know, 28, 28 at the time. And, um, we'd won. It was the only match of the year that we'd won. And, uh, we went to a bar to celebrate and Anderson Cooper comes on the TV and, and says that an earthquake had struck Haiti and, and killed, they think around 300,000 people. And I just remember mm. thinking to myself, like, ah, like what a shame. And like everybody, you know, when everything, things like this happen, we just, we just feel bad. Yeah. And that night I went home and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, what a shame is the best you can do. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, like, so, so like I'd been looking for the, I think it was these moments that come across, you can come, come across in life where, uh, you feel like, okay, like this is a moment, uh, that I'm supposed to do something. And I did exactly what I tell people not to do now. I, I went yeah. <laughs> immediately after the disaster. I took a bunch of pictures. Yep. The idea was I was going to sell the photos to raise money for some nonprofit. And in the process, learned that places like Haiti are a mess. And um, it's not because of the people that are there. It's because of the people that come and visit and, and bring a whole host of issues um, around NGOs and businesses that make it very difficult for people who are born in those places to, to move upward. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, 2010, I don't think you're wrong for, you know, going like a lot of people went and I think that was super helpful. I reacted similarly and right before we were about to buy plane tickets to go, uh, I was involved in a lot of humanitarian work. We were about to get on. We actually had a plane that we were going to go on. It wasn't a like a airline uh, with with a group of people going, and um, we decided not to and uh, put together a benefit concert instead and raised twenty five thousand dollars. But I think you know we all we all have our path, to, you know. And but if you uh, maybe and maybe you can maybe this will lead you into this next phase of the story. If you wouldn't have gone and seen things firsthand you know, maybe you wouldn't have gone on to start, you know, to, to launch Thread and Team Tassie, which is now work. And would you mind getting into that now? Like, tell us about, um, so 2010, you go over there, not really a plan in mind, take pictures, give it to some nonprofit. What did you see? What did you experience that caused you to say, okay, I need to go beyond, you know, I already went beyond, that's a shame. And I'm here trying to do something, but now I need to go one step further. Cause that, that whatever happened in that season of your life really changed the trajectory of, you know, your life for a long time to come, right? It 100% did. And like, you're definitely kind of barking up the right tree. I, you know, it's funny, like that week there was, was extraordinary. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, everybody kept telling me, you know, oh, you won't come back. Oh, you won't come back. Nobody comes back. And I kind of took it as a dare. <laughs> um, so I came home and, uh, you know, it was immediately apparent that like what I'd experienced in Haiti was so jarring to the way that I lived in Pittsburgh. Um, and, and that, you know, it was very easy to all of a sudden feel like you didn't really have a home in either place because, you, you know, Haiti's so close to the U.S. You know, it's the largest economy in the world, right? you know, neighboring the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And you just, you're very aware at all times uh, of your privilege 
you know, and for the first time in my life, I became very aware of both the fact that I was white um, and also the fact that I was rich, um, at least by Asian sure, standards. Yeah. And, and those two things were really jarring concepts. So to, to come in face to face in a very real way as a young man um, with, with, you know, both privilege and race um, and how those two interplay was something that was, was difficult. But, you know, I, I, on that first trip, when I, when I came home, I was looking at pictures and you, you know, you see the same two things in every picture I'd taken. You saw like this immense amount of poverty and a lot of, and this immense amount of trash in the background of literally every single picture there was just trash everywhere. And it was on my second trip. There was this guy that I started to get to know. Um, his name is Tasi. And uh, he, when I met him, had this enormous tumor on his face. Turns out there was a tumor growing out of his jaw that was slowly killing him. And, and for no other reason than like, I think he saw like a guy that might be able to help him out. Um, he took me aside on that second trip and he asked me directly for help. And, and I swear to God, it wasn't, and there was no, al- nothing altruistic about it. Like, it wasn't like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to save this guy. Sure. Like, that was a weird, it was just like, you're confronted very directly by a person at like looking you at the eye and asking you for help. It, it was like, you know, didn't really feel like I had much of a choice. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I came home, I, I figured out that I could, I could sell those pictures that I'd, um, that I'd taken for some cash. My friends and I raised about 50 grand. Um, we got him a surgery. I found a doctor in Pittsburgh that would do a surgery for all intents and purposes, smuggled him into the United States. <laughs> like wow. got him a kind of a trumped up visa to get him into the U S and, um, uh, <laughs> that's really funny to say trumped up these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, got him, you know, a, a visa to get in into the U.S. and and um, we got him a surgery that took his jaw out. Essentially, he, he completely rolled his face back, took his jaw out, and replaced it with a bone from his leg. And he created, you know, the doctors created a new jaw. And he, he lived with me and my roommate and my basset hound dog for twelve weeks. And it's those twelve weeks that completely changed my life. But it, it wasn't until after the whole thing was over, we took Toss back into Haiti, where he's from. And we, we, you know, like the experience was, by my account, finished. You know, we brought him back into the neighborhood that he lived in, Cité Soleil, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the Western Hemisphere. And frankly, like, that's the moment where I realized that this entire experience was this big kind of whites and shining armor experience that, like, by just dropping Tassi off into the neighborhood that he was born, understanding that he was destined still to the same life that most guys his age we're destined to, which is a pretty short life and a pretty violent death. Um, so that, you know, that by helping him get the surgery didn't solve the problem. It just solved the symptom. And so that begged the question, like, well, what's the problem? Like, what, what does it mean for the poor not to need the rich anymore? Like, how do we help this kid all the way? First of all, that was a weird feeling. It's just like this whole thing, this whole exercise to that point had been pretty self-congratulatory. It's been like, hey, look what we can do. And so I spent a year and a half trying to figure out what it meant for the poor not to need the rich anymore by asking the people that I was meeting in Haiti. I started going back and forth dozens and dozens of times. What I learned throughout that process was that the, it was something like, I think that was completely earth shattering for me, but probably sounds pretty simple to you, which is that like, I learned uh, that the poor and the rich are not different. I learned that when you ask 
the folks uh, that I was meeting in Haiti what it is they needed, they would tell you the same things that somebody in my hometown in Ambridge would tell you. It's that they just need a decent way to make a living and for their kids to have a better life than they had. And I, it was that was kind of a completely like thunderstrike uh, of a of a realization for me. It was like from my entire life, I treated everybody that was poor as them, and everybody that was rich as us. And it was just a realization that uh, the, all, kind of all those walls came tumbling down. And that was when it was like, oh, this is why NGOs and nonprofits don't necessarily always do a great job because they're not solving for the actual issue, which is that people need good jobs. So then I decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how to get good people jobs and, and help all the people that have been coming to me since I met Toss. That's beautiful, man. There's so much to talk about there, but I love how you just kind of wrapped up what you just shared by saying, I, you know, that's, it was then that I decided to spend the rest of my life helping people, good people find jobs, right? That's a beautiful thing. And, we could talk, you and I, probably with the experiences we've had, we could talk forever on the sentence before that where you said, this is why nonprofits and NGOs fail so often to actually address the real issues and you know really right. bring in long-term solutions. It's all symptoms. It's all Band-Aids. I shouldn't say all, but it's primarily symptoms and Band-Aids. And let's stop the gushing blood, but uh, but then what? How do, we, how do we actually fix this long-term? So Based on what you just said, what did you go on to do? What does that look like? I mean, I know, but for people here listening, like, what did you go on to do? To talk about the work that you then went on to do, and let's talk impact. Let's talk what you're creating, all of those things. Yeah, sure. Well, and I think you, I mean, I'll touch briefly on the nonprofit thing, because I think it's important, is that, I, you know, you're right. Like, throughout this process, over these one and a half, two years of just, you know, hundreds now of trips to Haiti, um, I, you know, I, you, you just observe a lot. And it's not that it's not that nonprofits don't have a purpose. Of course they have a purpose. They have a really critical purpose. Um, and, and a lot of times that purpose is just something very specific, and particularly after big disasters. I can't uh, overestimate the, the value of NGOs and government um, after, after big disasters. Um, that said, like, I think you hit it on the head, like the, the symptoms versus source. And, and I came by this, honestly, it was really, truly my ignorance that led me down the path of understanding and developing this philosophy. I, I started reading everything I can get my hands on, um, uh, on people who I you know, came across to working with the poor. And it really settled into like three people that I started to develop a philosophy room. Um, I was reading a ton of, by a guy named Paul Farmer who started an organization in Haiti called uh, Partners in Health that spread to other countries throughout the world. Um, and Paul um, is a, essentially um, pulled his philosophy from the liberation theology of the Central America in the 80s. Not to get too like esoteric, but Paul believes in the accompaniment, essentially the, the walking alongside the poor as opposed to leading them or pushing them. Um, and I thought that was just really critical. Uh, there's a second guy uh, who worked in, in New York City, of all places, um, in, a, in Harlem and worked in a 64 square block area. His name is Jeffrey Canada, and he created an organization called the Harlem Children's Zone. And Jeffrey believes in like a geographical boundary to know. So essentially saying, like, how do we decide who we serve? Well, if you live within this boundary, we're going to serve you. If you don't, we, we won't. Because uh, I think having a boundary to say no is a really important and then the third um, was this guy right here in Pittsburgh um, who started a really incredible organization called the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, 
this guy, Bill Strickland. And Bill, you know, saw the need for jobs in a neighborhood and rather than rather than uh, train people for jobs, decided to start placing people into jobs and, and has had this really magnificent run of, of, of 100% graduation rates in, in both training and placing the poor in the jobs. So if you take these three things, accompaniment and geographical location and, and jobs placement, you know that was kind of the three legs of the stool for me that became my philosophy on poverty and understanding that I, I believe that poverty is a disease um, like uh, AIDS or Ebola or... That ending it is possible by the time that you and I have grandchildren. Um, and, and in fact, we're on our way to doing it. I think it's often overlooked, but we've halved the rates of global poverty in the past 30 years. And that the immunization to that disease, the cure, is a good, dignified job. The problem with nonprofits is that, that as well-meaning in many cases they are, is they're not suited both infrastructurally and for the, you know, the many times the people, the training of the people that are working in it to, to be businesses. They're not trained to create jobs. They're trained to solve for issues. And so I, I don't think the orientation of the NGO, it's not their, it's not the fault of the NGO. It's just the orientation of the organization is not structured to do the thing that people actually need to end poverty. So, and the reason for that, which is so fascinating to me is that the vast majority um, of nonprofits you know, the startup culture that exists in, in, in those communities, um, that funding comes in, whether there's, there's no penalty for being inefficient. Um, so I, I got really excited about the fact that it, what if we could create these jobs? What if we could place people in jobs in, in Haiti? And that's when I came up against one of the biggest stumbling blocks, which is one of the other big reasons that nonprofits don't do this is that the, un, 